Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is New York Times bestselling author Elizabeth Kohler Pentakoff, author of The Missing Kennedy, Rosemary Kennedy and the Secret Bonds of Four Women. Rosemary Kennedy, younger sister of President John F. Kennedy, was lobotomized at age 23 in 1941 and was put out of public view in 1959 at a remote facility in rural Wisconsin. For more than 20 years, she remained unvisited by family and non-family alike. In 1962, Elizabeth Kohler Pentakoff and her parents were likely the first non-Kennedy family members to visit Rosemary following her lobotomy. Elizabeth, niece to Rosemary's caretaker, visited her on a regular basis for the next 34 years. And through their friendship, Elizabeth discovered the person many had forgotten or had never known. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. Well, New York Times bestseller, uh, Rosemary Kennedy. Uh, many of, of us or many of this generation really don't know who Rosemary Kennedy was. So you let's are, start with that. Yeah, who is she? Yes, you are absolutely correct. Uh, and even people of, of my generation have pretty much forgotten if they had known. Um, Rosie Kennedy, uh, we called her Rosie, or Rosemary, uh, was the uh, sister of our Jack Kennedy, our 35th president. And many people do not know that she had a very tragic and troubled life. Uh, She was a wonderful human being, a beautiful young lady, when she was found to be suffering, uh, first as a child, they discovered that the doctors said she was mentally challenged. Well, back then they called her retarded. Today we would know that she was uh, merely learning disabled. And then as a teen, she started fighting uh, mental illness uh, and had horrible temper tantrums. And unfortunately... Uh, Joe uh, Sr., Jack's father and uh, family's father, uh, sought a very very horrible surgery, Uh, not his fault, but he he had her lobotomized and it did not turn out well. Right, lobotomized, you know, it sounds today, it sounds like a horror story to us, but lobotomized back in, in that time, was really kind of a new procedure, wasn't it? And there was, I'm assuming, good intentions from Kennedy Sr. that he thought it might work, it might change the, her behavior because, behavior, because along with her, what they called mental retardation, um, as you say in your book, she also had fits and she had difficulty controlling her behavior. And wasn't that some of the reasons why they did this lobotomy? Yes. And, you know, we have to kind of go back in time because mental illness and mental challenges today, fortunately, thanks to much of the Kennedy work, is a different, um, you know, different completely. Well, back when Rosemary was born, back in 1918, uh, 
mental illness or mental challenges uh, were thought to be the, you know, caused by the devil. Um, many people thought they were contagious. Uh, they thought that if it happened in a family, um, it brought bad luck. Um, you shouldn't even be near the family. So that family members, if they had a loved one who suffered, uh, could be targeted throughout wherever they lived. Uh, they, the breadwinner could lose his job. Uh, they could be evicted from their home. Um, you know, we're talking major bullying uh, to the point of violence. So it was very dangerous for anyone to admit that someone had an illness in their home. Patients were often told um, uh, to, you know, just go to an institution. Family members were told not to visit because it would be too much of an emotional upheaval. And right away they told the Kennedys that Rosemary should be institutionalized and Rose and Joe, the parents, fought that completely and instead uh, educated her with private tutors. Mrs. Kennedy worked with her and uh, they enrolled her in in private schools. Uh, And like you said, in her teens and early 20s, she began exhibiting signs of terrible mental illness. She had horrible temper tantrums where she hurt herself and others um, and something had to be done. Uh, Joe looked around, you know, and just, of course, you know, oh, I just ahead. want to interrupt for a minute, uh, Elizabeth, because I think that's a sadly somehow a common theme. Because, and, and particularly sometimes with young men, as they get from a social work perspective, as they get older and uh, go through puberty and get stronger, uh, it gets more difficult to control behaviors that otherwise are easier to control, let's say, prepubescent. So it's not surprising that what you at age 23, uh, she was lobotomized and then sent away because she was a grown woman, an adult woman, difficult to, to handle for them, particularly at that time. Absolutely. And, you know, there were no drugs, uh, to help the situation. Um, there was, you know, nothing that the doctors knew. There was so little that they knew about the brain that um, they were, they didn't know what to do. And back then, you know, mental institutions, uh, there were no federal laws regulating anything so that mental institutions were held in ancient old fire traps. Overcrowding was rampant, uh, you know, the choice of treatment when you were got into a mental institution, well, they didn't really know how to handle those temper tantrums and violence. So they would often uh, tie patients down with bed sheets and use, um, um, you know, restraints. And uh, they had all sorts of horrible therapies. Uh, electric shock therapy was was popular, and in fact, you know, it it happened to my own aunt who uh, we didn't know at the time suffered from schizophrenia. And um, not only that, but they did horrible things where they would put patients in a, in a very ice-cold or very, very hot tub, and they'd immerse them and strap them in. But they wouldn't do this for, you know, 30 minutes at a time. They'd do it for hours or days or weeks at a time. So it was it was just a horrible situation, and doctors were were frantic to help these families who really needed an answer, and that's when uh, they turned uh, to the lobotomy, and um, that's a whole nother <laughs> topic. 
But Elizabeth, what about the difference between, because you're talking, you're writing about the Kennedys. I mean, this is a, obviously the president of the United States, uh, his family. This is a very famous, well-known family. Uh, it was she, uh, uh, Rosemary, receiving the same kind of treatment that, say, your average person was, because this is very different. The Kennedys, uh, assuming they could do the very exactly. best, or at whatever the best practices were at the time, and the best practices, as you're describing them, sound like a, like a horror chamber, but what what's the difference between, let's say, their story and the story of perhaps the average person, and we're not talking about 1918 when she was born, we're really talking about the 40s and right. The 50s, right? Well, uh, you know, the lobotomy uh, was probably not offered to everyone because they couldn't afford it. Uh, at the time, it was written about in the New York Times and, you know, every possible magazine, Newsweek, uh, said it was, you know, just absolutely wonderful. And the reason why all this media picked up on it was the doctor who, uh, one of the doctors who performed uh, Rosemary's lobotomy was really a publicity maven. And he knew how to work the media, and he also basically lied. He lied to himself, he lied to others, he changed his data, and uh, so he proclaimed it to be the best thing since sliced bread. And he would have told Joe that in order to help Rosemary lead a more calm and productive life, that lobotomy was the answer. And so, you know, they did have this available to them, but there were lots of people uh, from ordinary families, uh, uh, you know, around the world, and especially in America where Dr. Freeman was, where um, this was done. And it was done, uh, you know, Freeman advertised it uh, as, you know, you've got a bored housewife um, and who's very sad about doing the dishes. Well, husbands would have their housewives, uh, wives uh, lobotomized. Um, I talked to one man whose mother was lobotomized, and he said that it was like living with a robot because the uh, prefrontal lobotomy takes away the highs and the lows, so there's really very little emotion left. And his see, mother, you know, when you're describing uh, that, the lobotomy, and you talked about the fact they didn't have medication at the time. Right. It almost it sounds like antidepressants do the same thing, actually. And when Absolutely. people get hooked on, yeah, they get hooked on antidepressants, and, you know, the highs and the lows. There aren't highs right. and lows. It's just kind of that medium, you know, affect, which exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah. Only with a lobotomy, it was permanent. Yeah. There was no, you know, you couldn't get off the drug. You just were lobotomized, and that's the way it was. Okay, so, so you've explained, um, you know, you've explained, like, why, and it, to me, and uh, answered a question, because uh, I've always thought, well, you know, maybe they just wanted her lobotomized because they just wanted to kind of get rid of her. But uh, as you're talking about, this was best practices at the time, and Joe Kennedy and the family, they got really kind of, it sounds like anyway, they kind of got uh, fooled by this physician. and they also did. Yeah, the media. So now your person, this is a memoir, so what about, so now how you, you step in, uh, you know, you've, you've gotten all this information, but you have a very personal connection, obviously, and that's what the book is about, to Rosemary uh, Kennedy. What happened? How did you get involved? My aunt was a St. Francis of Assisi nun, and both of us were living in southeastern Wisconsin. She uh, was assigned uh, by her community to take care of Rosemary. And so she lived about 20 minutes away from us. 
and we visited Sister Paulus, my aunt, and Rosie on Sundays. Uh, we were allowed to see her when I was four years old, which would have been in 1962. So from then on, I pretty much uh, grew up to know and, and love Rosemary. She uh, was, you know, she visited our house. Uh, we were with her. We went out shopping and out to restaurants and to church with her. Uh, so, you know, she was kind of became part of our family. Uh, so she was a lovely woman. The sad part is, of course, no one from her family, as you pointed out, um, was involved with her life after her lobotomy because the doctors told Joe to, you know, keep her hidden for her own safety and uh, don't visit her ever again. So from what 1941... What kind of a connection did you have? What kind of a connection did you have? I mean, you talk, she was a lovely person. She was a good person. All of those kinds of things. Descriptive. Yes. But like in terms of your intimate relationship with her, because if you were four years old, and, and, and just a four-year-old today, for instance, um, I took when my, one of my boys, I have three boys and one very young and took him to see a very, very, very old great aunt in a nursing home. And he was terrified of her. She was a lovely old sure. lady, but he very frightened just by her mannerisms and her, uh, you know, the way she interacted. And I would assume maybe that would be for you at four years old, perhaps any of those feelings or how did you begin to make the connection and what was, what was the real connection? Well, first of all, Rosemary lived in a home that Joe had built for her on the um, uh, St. Coletta, which is the home for the mentally challenged. Um, and so she had her own ranch home. And I was going to see my aunt, whom I loved very deeply. And uh, Rosie was um, friendly and, and sweet. Um, she was not vivacious like she was in her younger years. But um, so in the beginning, you know, she probably... She and I did not connect when I was four. It became more of a connection as I grew older, and I realized she liked some of the things that I did. She liked looking at books. We could look at books together. We could look at her fancy, colorful greeting cards that she got from um, many loved ones, and um, we could talk about that. Um, and then we started realizing that she loved music, and so she and I could dance to music. And um, she loved swimming. She was a great swimmer. She, uh, with my aunt's help, remembered what it was like to be a Kennedy. And she loved diving off the diving board and swimming. She loved taking nice long walks. And she did talk to me. She talked in somewhat of a garbled language. So in the beginning, it was difficult to understand her. But then Sister Paulus would kind of give us cues as to what she meant. And she talked a lot about Europe. So that means that I believe she remembered what it was like to live in England, which she did when her father was ambassador. So we were able to connect in those kind of ways. In addition, we both liked desserts. So, you know, when desserts came out, she and I both clapped our hands. <laughs> Was there any, you know, you're describing this relationship, this ongoing relationship that gets closer and closer. Uh, my question is, why weren't doctors or nursing staff or whoever, the caretakers, well, actually even uh, your, um, your your aunt, I guess, right? Um, right. 
wouldn't they want to say, well, if they're connect, if she's connecting to you in this way, maybe she could connect to her own mother in this way, her, her own siblings in this way, uh, that right, there would right. be a chance to do that. Did anybody ever ask or question that? Well, what happened is she was cut off from her family from 1941 until 1961. So we were not allowed to visit or say anything about it. But in 1961... Joe Sr., her father, had a debilitating stroke and ironically left him in a wheelchair and unable to talk. So when the nuns at St. Coletta could not contact Mr. Kennedy, then they contacted Mrs. Kennedy. And she and her family learned the truth about Rosemary for the very first time. And she learned that, um, you know, this horrible thing had happened with um, uh, her being cut off from everyone. And Mrs. Kennedy said, hey, take her out to restaurants and socialize her, have visitors, take her visiting. And that's when we met her as well as her family. So then Rosemary began having a whole new relationship with all of her family members. When did Rosemary die? How, how old was she? And where did, and where did this happen? What happened? And she also, died. I guess... Yeah, yeah. Oh, she died in 2005 at age 96. I'm sorry, not 96, 86. And uh, my aunt also passed at 86, but um, several years earlier than that. And Rosie, you know, once once she, um, you know, connected with her family, she was able to travel all around with Sister Paulus to um, her siblings and her mother, um, she was a familiar face around Hyannisport, and um, you know, new relationships were built and forged. Do you think part of that, you know, we were talking about she just died in 2005, 10 years, 11 years ago, that uh, we touched on the fact about a medication which wasn't available earlier, and I assume that there were, obviously, there are medications now that are available that right. uh, yeah, that help the mentally challenged amongst many other people, and so that that may have helped her to be able to integrate more into the family and into general society at large, you know, or just into our culture? Um, certainly that um, she was on um, some, some mild medication. Um, I do know that she suffered from epilepsy, and so she um, ha- was taking something for that. But um, I think she really blossomed in two places. One, when my aunt began taking care of her, because she knew how to relate to Rosie more than anybody else. And I'd you know, I, a lifetime of seeing how people related to Rosemary, and they were all very, um, you know, good to her and loving. But Sister Paulus had that special bond, and they could just, um, just really um, connect. It was almost like, you know, it was a, a, a like Sister Paulus was the parent, and Rosie was her, you know, adult daughter, and they just, they just were bonded. So what's the lesson that we what's the lesson we can learn from this? Because, you know, sort of like now, today, because I think there is obviously, you know, from reading your book, I mean, there are a lot of lessons to be learned, but uh, and sort of bringing it full circle. Uh, October right. is uh, National Disability 
Employment Awareness Month. So we're, uh, you know, like it's it's very important to, um, I think, bring this into the, into the into the now and look at the statistics. Absolutely. Yeah, because we do um, have. What I'm just going to read the one statistic: 56 million Americans have a disability, according to the Census Bureau report. And, and uh, considering that, seven million have a mental health disability, which I would, uh, Rosemary Kennedy, would be one of them. So hopefully, things have changed today. Have they changed today? What can we they learn have, from? Yeah, they have changed for the positive, um, obviously, because we've had uh, wonderful legislation that has been leading us. Um, to this, as well as, um, you know, things like the Kennedys did. They took a very tragic, negative situation, and as soon as, you know, the family learned, they came out and um, talked about it. Uh, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who was Rosemary's sister, started Special Olympics right in her own backyard, Um, and uh, her son, Anthony Shriver, uh, was very devoted to his aunt, and he started Best Buddies, which pairs able-bodied and the disabled. And I think on a private level, we have to remember that everyone around us, they, you know, anybody might have a mental disease, including ourselves. And so we need to treat everybody with compassion and, and um, fairness, and um, let's give everybody a chance. What's been the impact on your life, personally? The impact in my life has been many, many ways. Uh, first of all, Rosemary taught me the gift of not only compassion, but service. You know, I never really understood when people can be caregivers for much of their lives, how they dealt with it. But I realized what joy it was to give to someone else like Rosemary. And she gave back tremendously in her love and her attitude and her friendship. Uh, so that's on one level. And then another level, it just, um, you know, I, again, like I said, my aunt was, had a severe mental illness of schizophrenia. I had aunts who suffered from depression. My uncle took his own life. So I realized how it can affect everybody, but you might not even know it. Uh, it's, you know, it, it can be hidden. We should not keep it hidden. I believe we should talk to trusted loved ones, uh, find a good therapist, um, join NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Um, They're a wonderful organization. And again, just treat everyone with compassion. I think another practical piece of this, and I think Hillary Clinton is trying to do something about this, but there's a, a real stigma, there's a stigma actually in terms of insurance, and I'm talking from a social work perspective, of like right. allowing people to be and, and get help, to be in therapy if they have a mental illness, uh, the opportunities to uh, really benefit from uh, therapy is cut off after six weeks in many cases for patients who need min- much more time than six weeks, but it will insurance exactly. won't pay for that. Uh, that's a huge, that's a big problem, not just with social workers, but with psychologists and, and uh, perhaps psychiatrists, I'm not sure, but that's a big issue when it comes to mental illness. And, and we still don't give it the respect and the treatment right. uh, that it need, that we do with a physical illness. Exactly. Do you, I still think that perhaps that comes from, there's sort of this underlying kind of... Uh, Stigma that still exists. 
Exactly. It's Some a, kind of stigma. Yes, it's still, we still have there. that. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, stigma. Uh, yeah, no, the stigma is still there. And that's why I think it's really important to, um, you know, go to trusted loved ones. Um, and we have to, uh, you know, speak out when we see injustices. You know, if someone is being bullied, don't just let it go. I mean, we can use some common sense and some education on ourselves and speak out when it is uh, possible or to get help. You know, call the appropriate people if someone is being abused or um, bullied. Uh, So you're right. There's still a tremendous stigma with it, even though life has improved. And I think one thing, and and, and it it sort of comes out in your book as well and and through our conversation, you know, you don't have to necessarily start the the, uh, a huge project or a huge program. You don't have to be the head of the Special Olympics, but if you just do it one person at a time, whether it's in your own family or whether you tell your children and this is the message that you give to your kids and they go to school and it affects them and that they impact one other child in school, a huge difference. And, and it just, you know, continues to generalize in a very positive way. Absolutely. It, it's all around us and it's how you live your life and how you show respect, you know, whether it's the grocery bagger at your store, you know, smiling and thanking uh, that person um, you know, maybe having a conversation with them and then taking your, you know, afterwards having a conversation at home about it uh, with your children. Children will mimic adults. So if you act with love and respect toward others, uh, so will they. Uh, and if you, like I said, the books you read to them or that you have on your coffee table, uh, you know, things like reading about, um, you know, people being bullied or uh, various stories, you know, even reading other people's memoirs who are going through mental illness uh, seems to uh, broaden our outlook on life and, um, you know, end up in the reality of compassion. But you know what we find, I think more, most often or more often, we see these tragic stories, let's say, on the evening news uh, many of them, though, have to do, though, with mental disability. Very often, they'll have to do with physical disability. Uh, right. And, you know, getting, wanting people to empathize, and which is certainly a good thing. But you don't see so much, for, there's that stigma again, for people who um, suffer from mental from, illness. You're from right. mental illness. Yeah. It's, yes, absolutely. It just doesn't generate that kind of, empathy that we need and as a matter right. of fact, yeah. Well, you know, that's why we have such a huge homeless population. And, you know, I have seen people, you know, um, even shout at someone in the, you know, who is homeless and clearly ill, you know, oh, get a job. Well, it's like, you know what? There's a, there's a whole story behind that person who's, who's outside you know, shivering in the cold, and uh, just get a job is not going to be that person's answer if, you know, they have mental illness and they have sought relief through um, drugs and alcohol because the health system failed them. So, um, you know, there are, there's just, it's everywhere and yet it's nowhere, like you said. So we really do have to work at um, promoting um, mental illness because, not promoting mental illness, promoting how we react, not only on a personal level, 
level, but as a nation. Well, obviously, there is some interest. Uh, I mean, it, obviously, your book is doing that, and I assume you get a lot of feedback from the book and, and from those yeah. who, yeah, and it, it's a, and it's popular. So there are, I guess I would say, aren't we, we're progressing to some degree um, just in the fact that you can write a book like this about the Kennedys and about uh, their experience and uh the people are interested in hearing about it, even if they don't know who Rosemary Kennedy was. Now they do. Right. And more people come up to me and talk to me um, about and write to me about their own mental illnesses or how they had a family member with a mental illness. And they, too, grew up in the world of silence. Because when I was young, you know, I was not allowed to tell anybody about my Aunt Zora, who had schizophrenia. She had just kind of... She was, even though she was a part of our lives, we never mentioned her. And, you know, sometimes when we talked about her, even at home, my mother would start whispering. And it's because of how she grew up and and how everyone was at the time that you couldn't admit this. And so when I was talking to um, my cousin on the other side of the family about this book, uh, and I said, well, I'm going to be writing about my Aunt Zora. And there was this pause. And she looked at me kind of strangely. She said, who's that? I've never heard that name. And then it just became so clear that I had buried this so far that I hadn't even talked to a a very close Taylor cousin of mine about this problem. And she said, why, Elizabeth, I have an aunt with schizophrenia too. And it was just like this awestruck moment, you know, like, Oh, my gosh, if we had only talked or were allowed to talk together when we were younger, just think of that bond and how we could figure out ways to uh, feel better and, um, you know, how she would react with her aunt and how I would react with mine. That was a whole learning experience that we lost because of the silence that was, you know, kind of invoked on us. Mm-hmm. I think that that's that's very well said. The silence, and I think I'm I'm, I'm relating that. And we only have a couple minutes left. Literally, <clears throat> it's sort of like breast cancer was 30 years ago. You didn't talk about it. It was a whisper, right. just like you said. You know, if your mother had breast cancer, or your aunt, or your sister, we we just don't talk about it. Could be catching. Exactly. It's, it's a stigma, and that's kind of where we're kind of opening up and uh, allowing ourselves to talk about uh, persons with uh, mental disabilities. Okay, two more minutes. So. Um, Elizabeth Kohler Pentakoff is author of The Missing Kennedy, Rosemary Kennedy and the Secret Bonds of Four Women. We can buy it at Amazon, bookstores everywhere. And uh, Elizabeth, we can go online, obviously, to get more information about the book and about you. So give us the website or websites we can go to. Missingkennedy.com. That's it. Oh, well, LizBooks.com also has my um, children's books on it. Uh, not on mental illness, but on a, ver- a variety of other co- topics. But okay. missingkennedy.com is, is the one about uh, Rosemary. Okay. And you mentioned, uh, th- we have one minute, but there was also a national uh, website that we can go for, uh, National Association of Mental Illness, NAMI, that's another one? Yes. For more in- uh, information on mental illness. Um, yes. Not, not national, in- yes, absolutely. That's the place to go. I recommend it highly. They have chapters all over uh, for help. 
Great. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio, and we've been talking to Elizabeth Kohler Pentecost, author of The Missing Kennedy, Rosemary Kennedy, and The Secret Bonds of Four Women. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is New York Times bestselling author Elizabeth Kohler Pentakoff, author of The Missing Kennedy, Rosemary Kennedy, and the Secret Bonds of Four Women. Rosemary Kennedy, younger sister of President John F. Kennedy, was lobotomized at age 23 in 1941 and was put out of public view in 1959 at a remote facility in rural Wisconsin. For more than 20 years, she remained unvisited by family and non-family alike. In 1962, Elizabeth Kohler Pentecost and her parents were likely the first non-Kennedy family members to visit Rosemary following her lobotomy. Elizabeth, niece to Rosemary's caretaker, visited her on a regular basis for the next 34 years. And through their friendship, Elizabeth discovered the person many had forgotten or had never known. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. Well, New York Times bestseller, uh, Rosemary Kennedy... Uh, many of of us or many of this generation really don't know who Rosemary Kennedy was. So you let's are, start with that. Yeah, who is she? Yes, you are absolutely correct. Uh, and even people of of my generation have pretty much forgotten if they had known. Um, Rosie Kennedy, uh, we called her Rosie or Rosemary, uh, was the uh, sister of our Jack Kennedy, our 35th president. And many people do not know that she had a very tragic and troubled life. Uh, She was a wonderful human being, a beautiful young lady. When she was found to be suffering, uh, first as a child, they discovered that the doctor's said she was mentally challenged. Well, back then they called her retarded. Today we would know that she was uh, merely learning disabled. And then as a teen, she started fighting uh, mental illness uh, and had horrible temper tantrums. And unfortunately, uh, Joe uh, Sr., Jack's father and the family's father, uh, sought a very... um, in very horrible surgery, uh, not his fault, but he he um, he had her lobotomized, and it did not turn out well. Right, lobotomized. You know, it sounds today it sounds like a horror story to us, but lobotomized back in in that time was really kind of a new procedure, wasn't it? And there was 
I am assuming, good intentions from Kennedy Sr. that he thought it might work, it might change the, her behavior because behavior because along with her what they called mental retardation, um, as you say in your book, she also had fits and she had difficulty controlling her behavior. And wasn't that some of the reasons why they did this lobotomy? Yes. And, you know, you have, we have to kind of go back in time because <clears throat> mental illness and mental challenges today, fortunately, thanks to much of the Kennedy work, is a different, um, you know, different completely. Well, back when Rosemary was born, back in 1918, uh, Mental illness or mental challenges uh, were thought to be the you know caused by the devil. Um, many people thought they were contagious. Uh, they thought that if it happened in a family, um, it brought bad luck. Um, you shouldn't even be near the family, so that family members, if they had a loved one who suffered, uh, could be targeted throughout wherever they lived. Uh, they the breadwinner could lose his job. Uh, they could be evicted from their home. Um, you know, we're talking major bullying uh, to the point of violence. So it was very dangerous for anyone to admit that someone had an illness in their home. Patients were often told um, uh, to, you know, just go to an institution. Family members were told not to visit because it would be too much of an emotional upheaval. And right away they told the Kennedys that Rosemary should be institutionalized, and Rose and Joe, the parents, fought that completely and instead uh, educated her with private tutors. Mrs. Kennedy worked with her, and uh, they enrolled her in in private schools. Uh, And like you said, in her teens and early 20s, she began exhibiting signs of terrible mental illness. She had horrible temper tantrums that, where she hurt herself and others, um, and something had to be done. Uh, Joe looked around, you know, and just, of course... You know, oh, I just ahead. want to interrupt for a minute, uh, Elizabeth, because I think that's a, sadly somehow a common theme, because and, and particularly sometimes with young men, as they get, from a social work perspective, as they get older and uh, go through puberty and get stronger, uh, it gets more difficult to control behaviors that otherwise yes. are easier to control, let's say, prepubescent. So it's not surprising that what you at age 23, uh, she was yeah, lobotomized and then sent away because she was a grown woman, an adult woman, difficult to, to handle for them, particularly at that time. Absolutely. And, you know, there were no drugs... Uh, to help the situation. Um, there was, you know, nothing that the doctors knew. There was so little that they knew about the brain that um, they were, they didn't know what to do. And back then, you know, mental institutions, uh, there were no federal laws regulating anything so that mental institutions were held in ancient old fire traps. Overcrowding was rampant, uh, you know, the choice of treatment when you were got into a mental institution, well, they didn't really know how to handle those temper tantrums and violence. So they would often uh, tie patients down with bed sheets and use, um, um, you know, restraints. And uh, they had all sorts of horrible therapies. Uh, electric shock therapy was was popular, and in fact, you know, it it happened to my own aunt 
who uh, we didn't know at the time suffered from schizophrenia. And um, not only that, but they did horrible things where they would put patients in a, in a very ice cold or very, very hot tub and they'd immerse them and strap them in. But they wouldn't do this for, you know, 30 minutes at a time. They'd do it for hours or days or weeks at a time. So it was, it was just a horrible situation. And doctors were, were frantic to help these families who really needed an answer. And that's when uh, they turned uh, to the lobotomy. And um, that's a whole nother <laughs> topic. But Elizabeth, what about the difference between, because you're talking, you're writing about the Kennedys. I mean, this is obviously the president of the United States, uh, his family. This is a very famous, well-known family. Uh, It was she, uh, uh, Rosemary, receiving the same kind of treatment that, say, your average person was, because this is very different. The Kennedys, assuming they could do the very best for whatever the best practices were at the time, and the best practices, as you're describing them, sound like like a horror chamber. But what what's the difference between, let's say, their story and the story of perhaps the average person? And we're not talking about 1918 when she was born. We're really talking about the 40s and 50s, right? Well, uh, you know, the lobotomy uh, was probably not offered to everyone because they couldn't afford it. Uh, At the time, it was written about in the New York Times and, you know, every possible magazine, Newsweek, uh, said it was, you know, just absolutely wonderful. And the reason why all this media picked up on it was the doctor who, uh, one of the doctors who performed uh, Rosemary's lobotomy was really a publicity maven. And he knew how to work the media, and he also basically lied. He lied to himself, he lied to others, he changed his data, and uh, so he proclaimed it to be the best thing since sliced bread. And he would have told Joe that in order to help Rosemary lead a more calm and productive life, that the lobotomy was the answer. And so, you know, they did have this available to them. But there were lots of people uh, from ordinary families, uh, uh, you know, around the world, and especially in America where Dr. Freeman was, where um, this was done. And it was done, uh, you know, Freeman advertised it uh, as, you know, you've got a bored housewife um, and who's very sad about doing the dishes. Well, husbands would have their housewives, uh, wives uh, lobotomized. Um, I talked to one man whose mother was lobotomized, and he said that it was like living with a robot because the uh, prefrontal lobotomy takes away the highs and the lows, so there's really very little emotion left. And his mother... When you're describing uh, that, the lobotomy, and you talked about the fact they didn't have medication at the time. Right. It almost sounds like antidepressants do the same thing, actually. And when people get hooked on... Yeah, they get hooked on antidepressants, you know, the highs and the lows. There aren't highs and lows. It's just kind of that medium, you know, affect, which is... Exactly. Only with a lobotomy, it was permanent. There was no, you know, you couldn't get off the drug. You just were lobotomized, and that's the way it was. Okay, so So, you've explained, um, you know, you've explained, like, why, and to me, and answered a question, because... Uh, I've always thought, well, you know, maybe they just wanted her lobotomized because they just wanted to kind of get rid of her. But as you're talking about, this was best practices at the time. And Joe Kennedy and the family, they got really kind of, it sounds like anyway, 
they kind of got uh, fooled by this physician and they also did. yeah the media. So now your person, this is a memoir. So what about so now how you you step in? Uh, you know you've you've gotten all this information, but you have a very personal connection, obviously, and that's what the book is about to Rosemary uh, Kennedy. What happened? How did you get involved? My aunt was a Saint Francis of Assisi nun. And both of us were living in southeastern Wisconsin. She uh, was assigned uh, by her community to take care of Rosemary. And so she lived about 20 minutes away from us. And we visited Sister Paulus, my aunt, and Rosie on Sundays. Uh, we were allowed to see her when I was four years old, which would have been in 1962. So from then on, I pretty much... Uh, grew up to know and, and love Rosemary. She uh, was, you know, she visited our house. Uh, we were with her. We went out shopping and out to restaurants and to church with her. Uh, so, you know, she was kind of became part of our family. Uh, so she was a lovely woman. The sad part is, of course, no one from her family, as you pointed out, um, was involved with her life after her lobotomy because the doctors told Joe to, you know, keep her hidden for her own safety and uh, don't visit her ever again. So from what kind of a connection did you have? What kind of a connection did you have? I mean, you she was a lovely person. She was a good person. All of those kinds of things, descriptive. Yes. But like in terms of your intimate relationship with her, because if you were four years old, and 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 just a four year old today, for instance, um, I. Took when my one of my boys. I have three boys and one very young, and took him to see a very, very, very old great aunt in a nursing home, and he was terrified of her. She was a lovely old sure. lady, but he very frightened just by her mannerisms and her, uh, you know, the way she interacted. And I would assume maybe that would be for you at four years old. Perhaps any of those feelings, or how did you begin to make the connection, and what was what was the real connection? Well, first of all, Rosemary lived in a home that Joe had built for her on the um, uh, St. Coletta, which is the home for the mentally challenged. Um, and so she had her own ranch home. And I was going to see my aunt, whom I loved very deeply. And uh, Rosie was um, friendly and, and sweet. Um, she was not vivacious like she was in her younger years, but... Um, so in the beginning, you know, she probably, she and I did not connect when I was four. It became more of a connection as I grew older, and I realized she liked some of the things that I did. She liked looking at books. We could look at books together. We could look at her fancy, colorful greeting cards that she got from um, many loved ones, and um, we could talk about that. Um, and then we started realizing that she loved music. And so she and I could dance to music, and um, she loved swimming. She was a great swimmer. She, uh, with my aunt's help, remembered what it was like to be a Kennedy, and she loved diving off the diving board and swimming. She loved taking nice long walks, and she did talk to me. She talked in somewhat of a garbled language. So in the beginning, it was difficult to understand her, but then Sister Paulus would kind of give us cues as to what she meant. And she talked a lot about Europe, 
So that means that I believe she remembered what it was like to live in England, which she did when her father was ambassador. So we were able to connect in those kind of ways. Uh, in addition, we both liked desserts. So, you know, when desserts came out, she and I both clapped our hands. <laughs> Was there any, you know, you're describing this relationship, this ongoing relationship that gets closer and closer. Uh, my question is, why weren't doctors or nursing staff or whoever the caretakers will actually even uh, your, um, your your aunt, I guess, right? Um, right. Wouldn't they want to say, well, if they're connect, if she's connecting to you in this way, maybe she could connect to her own mother in this way, her own siblings in this way, uh, that right, there would right. be a chance to do that. Did anybody ever ask or question that? Well, what happened is she was cut off from her family from 1941 until 1961. So we were not allowed to visit or say anything about it. But in 1961... Joe Sr., her father, had a debilitating stroke and ironically left him in a wheelchair and unable to talk. So when the nuns at St. Coletta could not contact Mr. Kennedy, then they contacted Mrs. Kennedy. And she and her family learned the truth about Rosemary for the very first time. And she learned that, um, you know, this horrible thing had happened with um, uh, her being cut off from everyone. And Mrs. Kennedy said, hey, take her out to restaurants and socialize her, have visitors, take her visiting. And that's when we met her as well as her family. So then Rosemary began having a whole new relationship with all of her family members. When did Rosemary die? How, uh, how old was she? And where did, and where did this happen? What happened? And she also, died. I guess... Yeah, yeah. Oh, she died in 2005 at age 96. I'm sorry, not 96, 86. And uh, my aunt also passed at 86, but um, several years earlier than that. And Rosie, you know, once, once she, um, you know, connected with her family, she was able to travel all around with Sister Hollis to um, her siblings and her mother, um, she was a familiar face around Hyannisport, and um, you know, new relationships were built and forged. Do you think part of that, you know, we were talking about she just died in 2005, 10 years, 11 years ago, that uh, we touched on the fact about a medication which wasn't available earlier, and I assume that there were, obviously, there are medications now that are available that right. uh, yeah, that help the mentally challenged amongst many other people. And so that that may have helped her to be able to integrate more into the family and into general society at large, you know, or just into our culture? Um, certainly that um, she was on um, some, some mild medication. Um, I do know that she suffered from epilepsy. And so she... Um, was taking something for that, but um, I think she really blossomed in two places. One, when my aunt began taking care of her, because she knew how to relate to Rosie more than anybody else, and I, you know, I a lifetime of seeing how people related to Rosemary, and they were all very um, 
you know, good to her and loving. But Sister Paulus had that special bond, and they could just, um, just really um, connect. It was almost like, you know, it was a, a, a like Sister Paulus was a parent, and Rosie was her, you know, adult daughter, and they just they just were bonded. So what's the lesson that we, what's the lesson we can learn from this? Because, you know, sort of like now, today, because I think there is obviously, you know, from reading your book, there are a lot of lessons to be learned, but, uh, and sort of bringing it full circle, uh, October is uh, National Disability Employment Awareness Month. So we're, uh, you know, like, it's, it's very important to um, I think bring this into the, into the into the now and look at the statistics. Absolutely, yeah, because we do um, have what I'm just going to read the one statistic: 56 million Americans have a disability, according to the Census Bureau report. And, and uh, considering that, seven million have a mental health disability, which I would uh, Rosemary Kennedy would be one of them. So hopefully, things have changed today. Have they changed today? What can we learn have- from? Yeah. They have changed for the positive, um, obviously, because we've had uh, wonderful legislation that has been leading us um, to this, as well as, um, you know, things like the Kennedys did. They took a very tragic, negative situation, and as soon as, you know, the family learned, they came out and um, talked about it. Uh, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who was Rosemary's sister, started Special Olympics right in her own backyard. Um, and uh, her son, Anthony Schreiber, uh, was very devoted to his aunt. And he started Best Buddies, which pairs able-bodied and the disabled. And I think on a private level, we have to remember that everyone around us, they, you know, anybody might have a mental disease, including ourselves. And so we need to treat everybody with compassion and, and um fairness, and um, let's give everybody a chance. What's been the impact on your life, personally? The impact on my life has been many, many ways. Uh, First of all, Rosemary taught me the gift of not only compassion, but service. You know, I never really understood when people can be caregivers for much of their lives, how they dealt with it. But I realized what joy it was to give to someone else like Rosemary. And she gave back tremendously in her love and her attitude and her friendship. Uh, so that's on one level. And then another level, it just, um, you know, I, again, like I said, my aunt was, had a severe mental illness of schizophrenia. I had aunts who suffered from depression. My uncle took his own life. So I realized how it can affect everybody, but you might not even know it. Uh, it's, you know, it, it can be hidden. We should not keep it hidden. I believe we should talk to trusted loved ones, uh, find a good therapist, um, join NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Um, they're a wonderful organization. And, again, just treat everyone with compassion. I think another practical piece of this, and I think Hillary Clinton is trying to do something about this, but there's a, a real stigma, there's a stigma actually in terms of insurance, and I'm talking from a social work perspective, of like right. allowing people to be and, and get help, to be in therapy if they have a mental illness, uh, the opportunities to uh, really benefit from 
Uh, therapy is cut off after six weeks in many cases for patients who need min- much more time than six weeks, but it will, insurance exactly. won't pay for that. Uh, that's a huge, that's a big problem, not just with social workers, but with psychologists and, and uh, perhaps psychiatrists, I'm not sure, but that's a big issue when it comes to mental illness. And, and we still don't give it the respect and the treatment right. uh, that it need, that we do with a physical illness. Exactly. Do you, I still think that perhaps that comes from, there's sort of this underlying kind of... Uh, Stigma that still exists. Exactly. A, Some kind of stigma. Yes, still, we still have there. that. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Stigma. Uh, yeah. No, the stigma is still there. And that's why I think it's really important to, um, you know, go to trusted loved ones. Um, and we have to, uh, you know, speak out when we see injustices. You know, if someone is being bullied, don't just let it go. I mean, we can use some common sense and some education on ourselves and speak out when it is uh, possible or to get help. You know, call the appropriate people if someone is being abused or um, bullied. Uh, So you're right. There's still a tremendous stigma with it, even though life has improved. And I think one thing, and, and, and it, it sort of comes out in your book as well and, and through our conversation, you know, you don't have to necessarily start the, the a, a huge project or a huge program. You don't have to be the head of the Special Olympics, but if you just do it one person at a time, whether it's in your own yeah, family yeah. or whether you tell your children and you this is the message that you give to your kids and they go to school and it affects them and that they impact one other child in school, a huge difference. And, and it just, you know, continues to generalize in a very positive way. Absolutely. It, it's all around us and it's how you live your life and how you show respect. You know, whether it's the grocery bag or at your store, you know, smiling and thanking uh, that person um, you know, maybe having a conversation with them and then taking your, you know, afterwards having a conversation at home about it uh, with your children. Children will mimic adults. So if you act with love and respect toward others, uh, so will they. Uh, and if you, like I said, the books you read to them or that you have on your coffee table, uh, you know, things like reading about, um, you know, people being bullied or uh, various stories, you know, even reading other people's memoirs who are going through mental illness uh, seems to uh, broaden our outlook on life and, um, you know, end up in the reality of compassion. But you know what we find, I think, more, most often or more often, we see these tragic stories, let's say, on the evening news uh, many of them, though, have to do, though, with mental disability. Very often, they'll have to do with physical disability, um, right. and you know, getting wanting people to empathize, and which is certainly a good thing. But you don't see so much for there's that stigma again for people who um, suffer have from mental med- illness. You're from right. Mental illness. Yeah. It's, yes, absolutely. It just doesn't generate that kind of empathy that we need and as manifest yeah well you know that's why we have such a huge homeless population and you know i have seen people you know um even shout at someone in the you know who is homeless and clearly ill you know oh get a job well it's like you know what there's a there's a whole story behind that person who's who's 
outside, you know, shivering in the cold. And uh, just get a job. It's not going to be that person's answer if, you know, they have mental illness and they have sought relief through um, drugs and alcohol because the health system failed them. So, um, you know, there are, there's just, it's everywhere and yet it's nowhere, like you said. So we really do have to work at um, promoting um, mental illness because, not promoting mental illness, promoting how we react, not only on a personal level, level but as a nation. Well, obviously there is some interest. Uh, I mean, it, obviously your book is doing that, and I assume you get a lot of feedback from the book and, and from those yeah. who, yeah, and it, it's, a, and it's popular. So there are I guess I would say we're progressing to some degree um, just in the fact that you can write a book like this about the Kennedys and about uh, their experience and uh, people are interested in hearing about it, even if they don't know who Rosemary Kennedy was. Now they do. Right. And more people come up to me and talk to me um, about and write to me about their own mental illnesses or how they had a family member with a mental illness and they too grew up in the world of silence because when I was young, you know, I was not allowed to tell anybody about my aunt Zora who had schizophrenia. She had just kind of, she was, even though she was a part of our lives, we never mentioned her. And, you know, sometimes when we talked about her, even at home, my mother would start whispering and it's because of how she grew up. And, and how everyone was at the time that you couldn't admit this. And so when I was talking to um, my cousin on the other side of the family about this book, uh, she, and I said, well, I'm going to be writing about my Aunt Zora. And there was this pause, and she looked at me kind of strangely. She said, who's that? I've never heard that name. And then it just became so clear that I had buried this so far that I hadn't even talked to a, a very close Kaylor cousin of mine about this problem. And she said, why, Elizabeth, I have an aunt with schizophrenia too. And it was just like this off-strung moment, you know, like, oh my gosh, if we had only talked or were allowed to talk together when we were younger, just think of that bond and how we could figure out ways to uh, feel better and um, you know, how she would react with her aunt and how I would react with mine. We, that was a whole learning experience that we lost because of the silence that was, you know, kind of invoked on us. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's very well said, the silence. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm relating that, and we only have a couple minutes left, literally. <clears throat> it's sort of like breast cancer was 30 years ago. You didn't talk about it. It was a whisper. Right. Just like you said, you know, if your mother had breast cancer or your aunt or your sister, we, we just don't talk about it. Could be catching. Exactly. It's, it's a stigma. And that's kind of where we're kind of opening up and uh, allowing ourselves to talk about uh, persons with uh, mental disabilities. Okay, two more minutes. So, um, Elizabeth Kohler Pentakoff is author of The Missing Kennedy, Rosemary Kennedy and the Secret Bonds of Four Women. We can buy it at Amazon, bookstores everywhere. And uh, Elizabeth, we can go online, obviously, to get more information about the book and about you. So give us the website or websites we can go to. Missingkennedy.com. That's it? Oh, well, LizBooks.com also has my um, children's books on it. 
uh, not on mental illness, but on a, ver- a variety of other co- topics. But okay. missingkennedy.com is, is the one about uh, Rosemary. Okay. And you mentioned, uh, we have one minute, but there was also a national uh, website that we can go for, uh, National Association of Mental Illness, NAMI, that's another one? Yes. For more in- uh, information on mental illness. Um, yes, not, not national, yes, absolutely, that's the place to go. I recommend it highly. They have chapters all over uh, for help. Great. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio, and we've been talking to Elizabeth Kohler Pentecost, author of The Missing Kennedy, Rosemary Kennedy, and The Secret Bonds of Four Women. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 